The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You've entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simran Singh. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Learn to empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simran Singh. Welcome back to the third part of a three-part series with Charles Eisenstein. Before we get into that, I invite you to access 1111 magazine that is offered freely all of the time. It's a bi-monthly magazine that shares the voices and hearts of people all over the world. There are beautiful writings and the sharing of many different people that have stepped in their own gifts and passions, allowing them to share these with many people. You will be inspired, uplifted, and enamored with the images and the writing, so definitely go to 1111mag.com and you can access that for free. You don't even need to sign up to receive it. In addition, uh, you can look up my own books. Conversations with the Universe was just awarded the 2014 IPPY Award for the Best Mind, Body, Spirit book, and I invite you to discover how to trust more if you don't know how. The Conversations with the Universe illustrates how the Universe is speaking to us in every single minute, allowing us the conversations to move us along when we don't know which step to take. In addition, Your Journey to Enlightenment is my second book, and it is about enlightenment. It is something that we invite, invoke within ourselves. It's not handed down, and it is something that we do individually and then collectively. So if you'd like to step out of your conformity and into courage and remember the true expression of the divine child, then Your Journey to Enlightenment might be a support tool. My guest today is definitely someone whose books you should access, especially if you're wanting to break paradigms and really step out of some of the belief systems and patterns of behavior and habits that you have been locked into based on our conditioning. The titles of his books are The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and the one that we're discussing, which is The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. It is Charles Eisenstein, and he is a speaker and writer that focuses on the themes of civilization, consciousness, money, and human cultural evolution. His viral short films and essays online have established him as a genre-defying social philosopher and countercultural intellectual. You can find out more about him at charleseisenstein.net. We have been discussing everything from money to old stories and new stories, and we ended the last segment really talking about uh, scarcity, and I want to read a passage uh, to you from his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. More for you is less for me is a defining axiom of separation. True in a competitive money economy, it is fault in earlier gift cultures in which, because of widespread sharing, more for you was more for me. Scarcity conditioning extends far beyond the economic realm, manifesting as envy, jealousy, one-upmanship, social competitiveness, and more. 
Welcome back, Charles. I want to get into this conversation about competition because it's something that we kind of breed in this society. It's something that's been taught to us. It's instilled in the school systems for our children and in many of of the places um, athletes delve into uh, the reality shows now. Talk about um, how we can move from a state of competition into more of a place of synergy and synarchy? Well, I mean, I definitely have some things to say about competition and synergy and symbiosis and things, but um, uh, before I go there, I kind of want to just respond to this, um, like the nature of the question, um, you know, how can we move from this to that. And I think like the premises of that, and I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, you are doing this, it's just kind of built into our language. But but it's the premises are or, or it's built into our um experience of the world in the society. The premises the premise, though, is that I can offer you, like, some set of instructions, you know, like a how-to. How do you do this? And I think that often that's not the right question. Um, what I find and what many people are finding is that uh, merely taking in certain ideas or a certain vision or having revealed something about themselves or about the world sets a process in motion from which the correct actions come naturally. Um, so I guess, because uh, uh, I guess I was kind of stopped when you asked him, like, well, I don't really have a how can we do this, you know, as, a, as if I were like an authority telling you here, first do this, that, then do that, like, you know, some kind of guru or something like, like that, which I'm really not. Um, so I want with that disclaimer, let me just say. Well, and I think that's so powerful because also that is typically the question that most people ask if they're having to make a step, if they're having to do something. Their first question usually is, "Well, how do I do that?" And and so in in understanding that sometimes the the, the place to be is really either in the inquiry or in the contemplation or in just the receiving of information that. Mm-hmm those steps will then be revealed. Yeah. Right. So when it comes to competition, um, Mm -hmm. again, competition has a bad name. You know, we're supposed to be moving toward cooperation. And that's true that we are moving toward cooperation and need to be. But, But competition does have a role to play. Ancient cultures would have ritualized safe spaces for competition to happen, uh, very much like sports, you know. So I don't think that competition is an evil thing. It's also a way competition can be a a means to self-discovery. So, for example, if I go out for the track team and I try out for the shot put, I'm not going to do very well. I'm a really skinny guy, you know. Um, and I might find out through competition that I had illusions about myself that were not true. And I might then say, yeah, you know, this big guy is a lot better at the shot put than I am, but hey, what about the, you know, 1600? 
you know, maybe what, what, what if I try that? You know, oh, and I'm, I'm good at that. So I learned something about myself. So I think that, that properly competition is a way to recognize and develop your gifts. So it's not a bad thing. Um, but, of course, in our culture, we turn it, we take it way, way beyond that. Um, because we live in, in an environment of artificial scarcity where uh, out-competing somebody means that you have the resources to live um, a secure life, and they don't. So I think, really, competition isn't the fundamental problem. Um, the fundamental problem is that we have a system that encourages and necessitates overcompetition through creating artificial scarcity. Um, one, one of the metaphors I use to describe it is the game of musical chairs. You know that game? Uh-huh. You have, say, you have a big yeah. one, say, you have 50 people and 45 chairs, you know? And, and imagine playing that game, and, um, and if you don't get a chair, then not only are you out of the game, but your kids don't eat enough food. Like, you lose your house. You know, bad things happen to you. And there you are, fighting for a chair, elbowing, shoving, you know, and, and either that or you're altruistic and you sacrifice yourself so that someone more needing, you know, with more kids or something gets the chair. But competition is built into the rules of the game. And to say that the problem is people's competitiveness is missing the fact that it's really the rules of the game. That's the problem. So... Our money system is very, very much like a game of musical chairs because of the way that money is created, that there's always more debt than there is money systemically. So we're always in competition for never enough of this thing that we need to feed our kids and put a roof over our house. Uh, So I think, yeah, I wouldn't really focus so much on um, stepping out of competition. Really what's more important is to see with eyes of abundance, um, which because underneath the artificial scarcity of our system that generates competition, there is a fundamental abundance in the universe. Our monetary system obscures that from us, um, makes it seem as if we live in a world of scarcity, and and it's not just you know something in our heads. I mean, there are billions of people in the world who live in abject poverty and very, very real scarcity. I mean, you know, they don't even have food security. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not definitely, definitely, I'm not saying that uh, money is neutral. It's just energy and it's our perceptions about it that make it into one thing or another. It has the musical chairs dynamic built into it. Um, but that can change because our money is simply a social agreement. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think, you know, really what to focus on um, is uh, scarcity and abundance uh, and not so much being less competitive. When, when, you, when, you, when you experience abundance, then you're naturally less competitive because there's plenty. Yeah. Yes, and I, I think also that it's about uh, moving from a place of, of competing to a place of celebration that that we are we are are destined to be a a peoples and a society of celebration 
of things that are occurring, and that in itself is another abundance. But we have been conditioned to believe that abundance is only money. Will you will you talk about how ancient cultures or uh, or, or what different views of abundance? Uh, just to give some examples so that people that have so locked into seeing abundance as just the wealth of money can start to perceive other forms to let go of the the strong attachment to money being the only way. Right. So abundance, you know, you mentioned before the phrase, more for you is less for me. That is true in a world of separate selves because you know, I'm separate from you, and there's this external universe separate from each of us, and if you control more of it, that's less of it for me. Um, so cultures that didn't see beingness as a separate individual had a much more um, abundance-based worldview. If more for you is more for me because we're not really separate, then we're not going to be competitive, and I'm going to see the world as much more abundant. Ancient cultures um, had economic systems in which that was very true. In a gift culture, if you have more than you need, you're going to give it to somebody else. Uh, Why would you keep it if you don't need it? Knowing that if you are in need, someone will give to you too, so you don't have to hoard things. You don't have to control things. So uh, economy and, um, I guess, kind of this spiritual teaching of abundance were in perfect alignment which we don't have today. Um, so underneath, though, the money-induced programming, uh, the truth of abundance is still there. Um, our, yeah. our additions <laughs> and superficial pleasures aren't only substitutes for something else. They are also glimpses of that something, promises. Shopping does give many people a fleeting experience of abundance or connection. Sugar does give many people a feeling of loving themselves. Cocaine offers a moment of knowing oneself as capable, powerful being. Heroin offers a brief surcease from the pain that one experienced as omnipresent. A soap opera produces the feeling of belonging, which properly comes from the being enmeshed in the stories of the people one sees every day. All of these are palliative medicines that make the state of separation a bit easier to maintain, but also contain the seeds of separation's undoing. First, because they sow discontent by contrasting the monetary experience of well-being, the momentary experience of well-being, or connection orientation with the default state of aching, lonely dullness. Second, because their effects render the fabric of life, wealth, and health, hastening the unraveling of the old story. Over time, their palliative efficacy diminishes while their destructive side effects grow. The drugs stop working. We up the dose. Eventually, that doesn't work either. This is from Charles Eisenstein's book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. You can find out more about him at charleseisenstein.net. We'll be right back. Visionary. Be extraordinary. Be the change. This is the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. 
People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. All day long, we sort out clutter in our minds and bodies, all the while trying to find that healing modality that will work for us. Tune in to Inner Mission with host Patty Campbell. Each week, we'll explore a deeper spirituality and the healing process. Everyone has the capability to heal themselves. Let us help you find your capability in the hopes that you will pay it forward. Intermission Journey to Wellness is broadcast live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you would like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to Simron at simron-singh.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simron Singh. We look within and question, what do I really want? Why am I here? What makes me feel alive? Because our deeper unmet needs are mostly invisible to us and because they have been unmet for so long, our physical and mental systems have adapted around them so that the pain becomes subconscious, diffuse, and latent. That makes it hard sometimes to identify what the unmet need is. During life transitions, the obscuring stories break down and what's missing in life becomes clearer. We begin to ask ourselves, what hurts? and to discover the answers. The answers orient us towards meeting our true needs for connection, service, play, and so on. As we do so, we find that our experience of joy and well-being deepens and that we far prefer this feeling to the pleasures that we now recognize were mere substitutes for it. My guest is Charles Eisenstein, and he is the author of The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. Charles, when we look at creating more abundance in our world, in our lives, and we look at what wealth really is for each one of us, oftentimes it, it is that dance of looking outside to see what the world holds collectively and taking that back inside to see where that mirror is. But that can be an often challenging and tiring walk because we have to face things that we don't want to face, and and the pain can be unbearable. And sometimes that pain comes from the story. 
not just the old story that we've been handed down, but the many stories that we have created in our own lives or have bought into in our own lives. Talk about the power of that old story and the the space between the old story and the new story. What's in that space? Yeah, so like you said, um, there's... I mean, I use the word story to refer to both the kind of overarching cultural narratives that run our society, um, as well as to the personal version of that that runs our own lives. Stories create uh, meaning. They create roles that we and others play. And stories, I see them as... uh, actual entities that have a lifespan, and eventually they grow old, they stop working very well anymore, they fall apart, and everything built on top of them falls apart too. So on the collective level, our, our, our you know, economic system, our political system, um, everything, you know, our educational system, everything is, is um, on shifting ground. It's foundation of, of narratives. Um, deep narratives is is unraveling, and and so these things are in flux now, and the same thing happens on a personal level, uh, where it could be that that um, the structures of our lives crumble, and with those structures, our sense of meaning and identity, and even our sense of reality crumbles too. We don't know who we are anymore. You know, we don't know how to. How did, the things that, that, uh, that worked don't work anymore. You know, our sense of ourselves as, as, as uh, you know, capable people could even fall apart because we were capable in the old story. We knew how to get things done, but now we're in new territory. And so this is what I call the space between stories where we haven't yet come to a new sense of capability that's grounded in uh, larger principles of of change. Uh, we, we don't have a new sense of ourselves yet. Uh, it's, this, it's a very sacred place that could last um, a short time. It could last years. It has its own wisdom, its own pace, its own rhythm, its own maturation process. Our society doesn't offer very much space for it. You're supposed to you know, get your act together. You're supposed to be doing something. You're supposed to know what to do. You're not supposed to be at a loss. You're not supposed to be in this state of not knowing. Um, other cultures did have a place for it. They understood, oh, you need to retreat because yourself is changing, you know. And they would have, they would have you know, you could go on a, on a walkabout, you know, on a vision quest, go retreat to a cave. I mean, they had, many societies had an allowance for this stage, but ours does not, and instead pathologizes it and medicates it, tries to keep you going in the old story, even when the old story isn't working. And these artificial ways of extending, which are based in fear, like there's kind of a clinging to what isn't working anymore. These work for a while. They work temporarily, but when they stop working, the results can be catastrophic. Um, Our attempts to keep people in consensus reality, to keep people in normal, to keep them playing the roles 
that normal says they should play can be very damaging. Uh, you may not know that, that, that almost every single school shooting over the last, ever since Columbine, has involved um, somebody who was on psych- psych- psychotropic medication. Mm-hmm. You know, SSRIs and, and antidepressant drugs and things like that. Every single one, with no exceptions that I know of. And that's one of the means of control. That's one of the things that, that basically we use these chemicals to say, to say, you don't want to participate in that world, but we're going to make you. We're going to make you happy with what you are not supposed to be happy with. Mm. So eventually these attempts fail, and we're plunged into that darkness. Darkness, why is that a bad thing? You know, why is light good, dark bad? Darkness is the time of unknowing. It's a time of discovery. It's a time where a new thing that you cannot see can arise. So I think we need to, you know, kind of uh, revalidate that as well and not be afraid of the dark. You bring about another very powerful point in the book, and it has to do with the word sacred, because we, we have tended in history, and, and even now so often, you know, when we think about sacred, we think of something far unreachable outside of us um, in a universe and, and beyond, rather than, than really looking at the sacred as right here, right now, palpable, tangible in my, in my hands or in my moments. Right. Um, this has to do with our, our um, conception of spirituality as well, where because of this worldview that says that matter is just a bunch of stuff. We exported our sense of the sacred onto a non-material realm, something separate from the world. And this is, and so, you know, we valued the high vibrations, not the low, you know, the mind or the spirit or the soul, not the body. Um, The abstract and not the concrete, the scientist and not the farmer. Um, and, and this is part of the devaluing of nature that is at the root of our crisis today. So now we're coming back to a more kind of engaged, embodied spirituality. I mean, even the word spirituality, I mean, what does that mean? You know, does it mean something separate from materiality? That separation is part of the problem. So even that word is coming into question, but let's let's say that we're reinvesting the life of matter, the life of the flesh, the life of our relationships with sacredness, and this is absolutely essential, and nature, you know, with, with sacredness, and this is absolutely essential to the survival of our species, and it's not even so much the survival of our species that's at stake, it's more of the um, the dream of the earth. That's at stake. We're here for a reason. The planet has dreamed us into existence. And if we were to perish, it's not just, well, Gaia would get along fine without us, probably even better. No. Every species has a gift. Mm-hmm. And ours is no exception, but we haven't really stepped into our gift yet because we're such a young species. But Gaia would be unfulfilled. There would be an unfulfilled process if we don't make it. So, I, I, you know, I think that um, reclaiming sacredness as 
a material, fleshly experience is absolutely crucial. In the book, you go into how necessary it is to uncover the pain and the hurt and allow ourselves to be in that place of despair. But are people also just as challenged as being in the place of pleasure? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of avoid both. Um, the, uh, you know, evolved person is not supposed to be uh, transported by emotionality. You know, you're supposed to be kind of serene and kind of detached, you know, and, and you know, I mean, and, and again, this is a becoming obsolete, you know, but you don't think of the, you know, Pope or the Dalai Lama or somebody jumping up and down with joy, you know, and rolling on the floor laughing and stuff. Although the Dalai Lama is actually very jolly. Don't know about the Pope. But, but yeah, you know, this, this idea of the spiritual person as the kind of unworldly detached person uh, who doesn't indulge in pleasure. I mean, part of the war against nature is, is to go against our natural impulses. So, Pleasure is, is, you know, of the body, you know, and it's a lower thing in this view. So it's something that you try to transcend. And that's part of the same mentality of conquering nature. It's conquering your own nature because your nature is to follow pleasure. So then someone says, well, what about, you know, Charles? You know, it looks like following pleasure is part of the problem. You know, people are, and then gratifying desire, which is pleasurable, is part of the problem. You know, that's why we're so consumptive. That's why we're doing such terrible things. And, and you read a passage before that, that, you know, where I'm saying, no, these are substitutes for what we really need. And lacking what we really need, of course, we're going to turn to the substitute. But the problem, you know, we go to war against the symptom, uh, which could be, you know, overconsumption or addiction or something like that. We go to war against the symptom, but leave the cause untouched, or even, we even, you know, intensify the state underneath the symptom. For example, a lot of our, of our, maybe on some level, all of our uh, toxic behavior is coming from the experience of being separate, the experience of not feeling at home in the universe, the loss of our connections. And when we condemn the behavior of, say, addiction or consumption, we make ourselves and others, whoever's being condemned, feel even more isolated, feeling more unsafe, less at home in the world. So a lot of our, our approaches are, are, contra- are counterproductive. Um, but in any event, this war against the self, this struggle against pleasure, is part of what I'm calling the old story. And that role of judgment that you just spoke of, that just perpetuates that old story and keeps us locked down in the very paradigms that we're trying to get out of. So judgment, then, uh, rather than pointing it outward, uh, there should be more of the reflective uh, inner work that takes place so that we can then go back and work on the outer collective. Is that what you would uh, feel in regard to that? Well, or how is your perspective on judgment? I mean, judgment can mean many different things, but 
the essence of judgment uh, to me is if I were you, I wouldn't be doing as you do. You know, if I were the Monsanto executive, I wouldn't be making Terminator seeds. You know, if I were the Tea Party politician, I wouldn't be saying that God hates gays, you know, I mean, whatever. Like, like if I were you, I would not do as you do. That is the essence of separation, and that's the essence of what I'm, what I'm referring to when I talk about judgment. And I'm saying that it's based on an untruth, because in fact, if I were you, in the totality of your life circumstances from birth or before, I would do as you do, because we're not fundamentally different. We're the same being occupying a different locus in yeah. this matrix of relationships. You know, with the same being looking out at different through different eyes. Uh, so, if we're in judgment, you know, it's, it, we're not going to be effective in the world because we're living in a delusion. That's all. It's not like it's good or bad. It's just not true. And when we uh, wake up from that delusion, we become powerful in a way that's not dependent on force because we understand what it's like to be another person. If that's called compassion. And we can say, you know, we can say, yeah, if I were you, what would I want? You know, what, are, what, what needs are unmet? You know, what would I really want? And we can appeal to that and uh, affect other people in a way that doesn't depend on being able to force them to do things. Force basically says, you don't want to change. You're a terrible person, but I'm going to make you change. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, 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 counteract your impulses with an even greater force. I'm going to, you know, coerce you or bribe you somehow into doing the right thing or into changing your behavior, um, which is very different from saying there's something in you that wants to happen. There's something that you want to do, and maybe there's a barrier, but I'm going to create conditions where you can really do what you want. And, and, and you can translate that approach to another person to the technological realm or the agricultural realm or the medical realm, you know, like the idea that there is an innate health in the body that wants to manifest and how do we create conditions for that? That's a, a basic feature of holistic health. And, and I think our need to change that probably is because we can't, we really can't humanize that one that we judge or that we oppose. And is that because we've lost touch with our very own humanity because we have not gone into the depth of our own pain and our own pleasure? Um, well, I think that the greater one's capacity to feel pleasure and pain, the more compassionate one will be. Um, and again, that's not something that I would try to convert into a to-do, uh, but perhaps it resonates uh, and speaks to a desire to be more alive, you know, to be more fully alive in pain and in pleasure, to be more present, to be more human. A more beautiful world, my heart knows, is possible. It's a world with a lot more pleasure, a lot more touch, a lot more lovemaking, a lot more hugging, a lot more deep gazing into each other's eyes, a lot more fresh ground tortillas and just harvested tomatoes still warm from the sun. A lot more singing, a lot more dancing, a lot more timelessness, a lot more beauty in the built environment, a lot more pristine views, a lot more water fresh from the spring. 
Have you ever tasted real water springing from the earth after a 20-year journey through the mountains? This is from the book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, by Charles Eisenstein. You can find out more and about his other books, Sacred Economics and the Essence of Humanity, at charleseisenstein.net. We'll be right back. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today, www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Are you someone who strives to accelerate your spiritual growth, living authentically? Everyone wishes they had a pipeline to higher wisdom to help them understand their life and manifest a new point of view. Join Holly and Paul Marwood, who will serve as your guides on Soul Genesis. They will share inspired guidance from the High Council of Orion, which can turn your questions into answers and your problems into solutions. Tune into Soul Genesis, live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you would like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to Simron at Simron-Singh.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simron Singh. In a time of social and ecological crisis, what can we as individuals do to make the world a better place? This thought-provoking book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible by Charles Eisenstein, serves as an empowering antidote to the cynicism, frustration, and paralysis so many of us are feeling, replacing it with a grounding reminder of what's true. We are all connected. Our personal choices bear unsuspected transformational power. By fully embracing and practicing this principle of interconnectedness, we become more effective agents of change and have a stronger positive influence on the world. He is also the book of he is also the author of the book Sacred Economics and the Ascent of Humanity. Charles, welcome back. And we're on this final segment. As you have moved through your own process of these writings and the experiences that you've had along the way in meeting with people and receiving 
the degree of support by trusting and stepping out further and further uh, into the very teachings that you have. What are the primary questions or sentiments uh, that you are are finding in those that you meet? What is the what is the call that they their hearts are asking for that uh, that is seeking an answer? Well, sometimes I uh, describe my work is that I just go around reminding people that they're not crazy. Mm. Uh, or reminding people of what they already know so that they can believe it more. Because I think we all have a knowledge that the world we've been offered is not the way it's supposed to be, that it's not good enough, that it's not beautiful enough, that it's supposed to be more joyful and beautiful and authentic and, and intimate and connected. But that's a lonely knowledge for many people. It, they may have been carrying it, yeah, in secret for years or decades, and to hear it spoken from outside uh, encourages it and allows them to stand a little bit more strongly in that knowledge. So that's what I do for people, and people do it for me as well when they reflect that back at me. Uh, So, you know, it's not something that I'm heroically doing without help. Uh, I'm more of kind of an antenna that when people are wanting this message strongly enough, then it kind of comes through me. Um, So really what it is, you know, is this um, message or this way of seeing, this way of being, it is, uh, it is, it wants to be born and it's finding a million ways to manifest in the world which is why you're hearing the same message in various forms coming out all over the place, you know. It's not just that there's a few spiritual teachers or something like that. I mean, it's, it's the water is rising and it's coming from many, many, many springs now. And I'm just part of that. And so are you. And is that, is that uh, belief or, or hearing and reminder of the possibility, is that the first miracle of many miracles? Um, It could land on somebody like a miracle. Um, A miracle, again, is uh, a glimpse of something that is impossible from an old story and possible from a new one. So a miracle is an invitation into a new story. So, yeah, perhaps that would qualify. You have here a miracle is an invitation to a larger reality, and we, you know, it's talked about how we are infinite possibility, and that we're here to to play in the sense that we really have the divine right that this this world that we live in uh, is is meant to be a place of true creation and abundance and wealth in in that manner as well, and we've lived out the other story. Can we believe enough that this new story is really possible, or is it, is it that the belief in itself is part of the creation and part of the experience that we as beings find so enthralling? And I know that that's, that's something that's a big, big question that I don't know any of us can answer, but your views on that. Belief 
um, where a change of belief is not normally something that we can do through an act of will. Uh, that's that's kind of one of the weaknesses of uh, New Age kind of law of attraction thinking that says, well, you just change your beliefs and you can change your reality, and beliefs can't be that hard to change, right? Because there's just this thing in your head. But beliefs are not just this thing in your head. They're uh, embodied uh, and not only embodied in our bodies, but uh, outside of our bodies too. You know, they're they're reified in, in all kinds of structures that maintain the beliefs. So until a belief is ready to change, it you cannot change it through will, through force. Um, however, the edifice, the scaffolding of our beliefs can be weakened and shifted through the experiences that we have, through the people we listen to, through the things we read, um, and through all of those data points that don't fit into the beliefs, which are, are, are happening with greater and greater frequency now as the shell of our world gets thinner. I don't know if that really addresses your question. I kind of went off on a little tangent there, but do you want to bring me right. back? That, that, no, that's great because it brings me to another point because we're, we're talking about stories. We're talking about an old story and a new story. And in in actuality, everything about each one of us is simply story. Uh, every, every encounter that we have, is there a point that we are to move beyond the story? Is, is there a context mm-hmm. where it really is outside of story altogether? Yeah, I think we need to spend more time outside of story. Uh, you know, in the body, you know, uh, in nature, um, uh, spiritual teachers, you know, or, or meditation teachers, like when you're, when you're meditating, you know, usually you're, you're trying to get outside of story, outside of interpretation and meaning and all of that, and just into the present direct experience of things. And I think it's really important to touch back on that uh, from time to time so that we don't get stuck in our stories. Uh, but that doesn't mean that story has no place. It's our primary uh, vehicle of creation in the social realm. You know, so, but yeah, I think it's important to touch back on the wellspring of our existence, uh, which, well, I don't know. I mean, I could get metaphysical about it and say that there's just deeper and deeper and deeper levels of story that ultimately the world and everything in it is just a story. But I don't know if we want to go there. Um, (laughs) Happy to go wherever you'd like to go. I love one passage in your book where you write, each time that happens, and it can happen as many times as there are variations on the theme of separation, we enter the sacred space that I've mentioned, which is the space between stories. We might think we can enter it on purpose without loss or breakdown, perhaps through prayer, meditation, or solitude in nature. Maybe so, but what brought you to such a practice? Unless you were raised in it, something probably happened to eject you from the normal world in which this isn't something people do. And so when you were talking about the validity of stories as well, it is, it's, it's almost as, as it's the, the ebb and flow of, of the stories that allow us the gift of that sacred space that's in between them to really relish where the truth lay in all of it. Yes. Um. I'm not really sure if I have anything to add to that. 
Um, Did you want to go into the metaphysical that you were discussing in terms of the story? Um, well, I mean, honestly, I got distracted by a baby. But <laughs> um, who's, interestingly, uh, you know, just learning to construct meaning and to construct story around the world. Uh, to, to kind of organize his reality and his perception. Um, so, but I guess I would say that that humanity has been, or not all of humanity, but the dominant culture, which has infected all of humanity, has gotten lost in a story that holds us separate. Um, and each of us personally have suffered the effects of that, being born into that story. Uh, a story that we are awakening from right now, uh, catching glimpses of the ancient and future story of interbeing, of interconnection, but uh, still, uh, still, at least speaking for myself, in most ways, still living in the old story, uh, which is breaking down around us. Um, so it's like going through a birth process happening to us. It's not like that the baby being born doesn't help a little bit. You know, he does. He pushes with his feet maybe or, you know, wiggles around. And, and, but really the mother is doing most of the work. And I think that, um, you know, as we go through this passage, the glimpses we get of what's possible um, of the new story are, they're like the light, you know, at the end of the birth canal that we're, we're moving toward. Have we, have we gone to a point where we are overlooking the beauty of the ordinary in search of this thing that is extraordinary, and we've done with consciousness the same thing that we've done with everything else in feeling like it's a goal to reach, it's a another caste system, it's another level of way of people saying I've, I've, uh, of this level of consciousness and, and people that are living in that way or not, or these dark things yeah. in the world. Talk a little bit about that as we yeah. close out the show. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, 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 we often, anything that's of the new story, we, we end up kind of trying to incorporate it into the old story. So ideas of enlightenment or awakening or consciousness get kind of projected into this linear scale of evolution where some of us are farther along than others, uh, um, and 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 you know it, it usually has something something to do with with raising vibrations and, and being less material. Um, but in any event, you know it, it creates this kind of hierarchy where usually those who entertain such theories will put themselves higher on this scale of awakening than than those who aren't in that conversation. So it becomes a form of kind of self-congratulation, uh, which is addressing a wound again, the wound of self-rejection. It gives you a reason to feel good about yourself and to like yourself, which is similar to what happens, you know, with people's political beliefs, you know, or their conversations, their gossip about other people. So-and-so is awful. You know it, I know it, so we're better than so-and-so. And it's all coming from this this wound of separation, which takes a form of self-rejection. And so when we heal that, then we're less likely to want to 
say bad things behind other people's backs to make ourselves feel good. We're less likely to need a spiritual uh, ideology that validates ourselves. We can just let go of all that. I want to thank Charles Eisenstein for being on 1111 Talk Radio. If you've missed the prior two episodes of this three-part series, I urge you to go back and listen. The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible is a book that has explored various facets of the different states of being, the habits associated with it, the wounds bound up in it, the stories that reinforce it, and the social institutions that reflect and sustain those stories. Change on all these levels is necessary in order for any one of us, and therefore all of us, to inhabit a more beautiful world. The titles of his books are The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, and The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. Definitely connect with him at charleseisenstein.net, and you can find a lot more in terms of resources there as well. And invite him to speak and present some of this information so that we can allow more and more people to tap into a truth that they know but may have not yet remembered. In love, of love, with love, and as love, I'm Simran Singh. Be well. Thank you for stepping into the doorway of conscious choice with 1111 Top Radio. Please join host Simran Singh again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for another enlightening edition here on the 7th Wave Network. Remember, shift happens. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.